All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Welcome to this episode of Making the Argument. This is Hamilton and we do have Nick here with us. And again, he is in Richmond. I think that we should take a moment to thank Nick for everything that he's doing, especially through the month of January, because as we went into 2023, it was reasonable to us that the podcast may be suffering just a little bit in terms of performance and numbers because Nick was down in Richmond serving his constituents of the 30th district here in Virginia. But that has, is not what has happened. January is actually our highest performing up month for the podcast ever. And we want to thank you for that. We appreciate you sticking with us as we allow Nick to focus on what the, his constituents in the 30th district have hired him to do down there in Richmond. And we appreciate your support and listening to us every Tuesday and Thursday here on Making the Argument. We have an exciting podcast for you today on the subject of Pfizer and everything that Project Veritas revealed just last week and how convenient it was that Pfizer decided to respond at uh, around 5 p.m. on Friday. Friday. Uh, there's a lot to be said about that, and I know that Lydia is excited to share with you why they would wait to, to such a time as to do that, and I will hand it over to Lydia now. Thanks so much, Hamilton. I am very excited about tonight's episode. If I have an echo, let me know, you guys, and I'll mute my mic. But I just wanted to say it wasn't 5 p.m. on Friday. It was 8 p.m. So this was well after business hours were all done. Everyone had gone home and or was out partying on a Friday night, the perfect time to drop something like this. I don't know if you guys remember, just as an aside, this is also when they told us that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died. And that was so interesting to me because I was like, the timing was just so perfect. I don't actually believe that's really when she died, but it is the place to send news when you want it to die. And that's exactly what Pfizer really wanted to happen with this. That's not what's happening. This video from Project Veritas is racking up close to 30,000 views at this point. So 30 this million story is not going away. 30 million. Yep. Yep, it's really getting up there. So I'm so excited to be here with all you guys. I'm so glad Nick's here with us on the phone. Hamilton, Christian, and Tina are all here. We're going to have a great conversation. So let's hop right into it. Well, Nick, I know that you've been very busy with legislation down in Richmond, and maybe you've been able to focus on this Ver Project Veritas story just a little bit. What have, been your, have, what have your thoughts been since all this has come out? Well, I, I think it's interesting in part to the response that certain social media platforms have had to it. Um, you know, obviously, when you've got someone right there, and Project Veritas has been excellent at doing this, whether it was with Twitter, whether it was with Planned Parenthood, and now with uh, Pfizer, I'm basically getting them to say the quiet parts out loud in environments where they don't think anybody's recording. And it's unfortunate that this is what it takes, but this is what it takes. And I think Veritas caught someone explaining in detail. And of course, for him to come back and say later, I, I was lying to impress a date. And that's funny. It's like, okay, I. 
Look, I, I've been married since I'm 19. I'm going to admit right now I've been out of the dating pool for a while. Uh, but I can't remember any time I was trying to pick up Tina going in to, you know, express detail with respect to the modification of a deadly virus. Like, I don't know if that's ladies. I don't know. Do, do modern women find that hot? I'm not sure. But um, it, it was it was interesting. Some of the things that, that he was saying and, and essentially admitting to. And the reason why nobody buys you know, his explanation or what's going on and the reason why this is there's already been a lot of mistrust and it just keeps deepening. Is because every time somebody puts forward an idea that, hey, they could be doing this, or what about this, or what about gain of function, or what about funding gain of function, it's not as if the other side of this um, tries to obfuscate as much as they do come right out and call you crazy, call you a liar, try to ban you, try to discredit you. Um, It it is like the worst, you know, ad hominem attack where half the time we'll just avoid the argument. Um, and, and they'll come after you personally. You, you saw the exchange between Fauci and Rand Paul when all this was going on. And, and here we have just more evidence that not only is it bad, it, it's worse than we thought. And, and yet we can find something like this and we will still be told that if you don't toe the line, we'll ban you. And, and at some point you're looking at these people going, you know, I don't want to hear another person talk about fascism that thinks all of this is okay. Um, so uh, that, that's my general take from what I saw from, from the Veritas uh, videos and from the follow-up video and then w- what the, uh, the media reaction has been to it. it it's, again, the, the gaslighting has gotten so extreme and so ridiculous that you would think, and, and every once in a while we'll, we'll get glimmers of hope, right? We'll, we'll get somebody on the left uh, that will come out and say, yeah, this, is, this has gotten a little bit crazy. You know, we saw John Stewart do this. Um, but it, it, it really has gotten to a point where, you know, people's people are questioning this. They've been questioning it for a while and they've been treated so horribly by these organizations that we find out later that lo and behold, they, you know, what, what they were suggesting or, or what they've been accusing these organizations of was not only right, but again, even worse than they originally assumed. I have a question about gain of function research, but Lydia, can you help us understand why publishing their response, why Pfizer waited till 8 p.m. on Friday to publish their response and what that means? Sure. So basically, I believe firmly that what Pfizer was trying to do with this particular timing was to redirect everyone's attention to the fact that they weren't. So they really very much so, Nick just mentioned Fauci, they did exactly what Fauci did with Rand Paul. They basically split hairs over the definition of a gain of function. Um, And this is exactly what Dr. Fauci did when he was being interviewed by, of course, Rand Paul. But I repeat myself. So what they were saying basically was that, oh, okay, so this isn't actually gain of function. And not only is it not gain of function, Everyone else is doing it too. So it kind of makes sense they drop this late because there are so many different angles you can come at this from. Like they actually took the Daily Mail, whom I appreciate greatly, actually took this right to a bunch of doctors and asked them what they thought about the fact that Pfizer was doing this kind of thing. And it was a very interesting response because some doctors were like, this isn't a big deal. Some doctors were like, this is kind of concerning. Other doctors were like, it doesn't make a difference either way because it's correct that other companies do it. Now, I think what our focus should be on, and 
Christian is going to hopefully talk a little bit about some of the, some of the financials here too, because those are kind of interesting as well. What we really need to focus on is how big tech immediately took the side of Pfizer and throttled, for example, they took down Project Veritas actual video, not for something that Project Veritas said, but for something that the actual engineer in question said about whether the vaccines were efficacious or not. And we're not going to get into that on this video in the hopes of keeping this video up on YouTube and in their good graces. But it was so interesting that what the Pfizer engineer said was actually what got the video taken down. But I think this should be our biggest red flag that even though Twitter was kind of turning around a little bit with Elon Musk at the helm and we're having a little bit of hope in that regard. I think this should be our huge notice that big tech is still very much not on our side and they will do everything in their power to silence a story like this. And it's not just big tech. It's complete lockstep response from the mainstream media and all of these big tech giants like Google throttling the, the search results, like YouTube taking down the video in conjunction with CNN not covering it, MSNBC not touching it. None of these organizations would be willing to touch it. 30 million views on this video. People care about this stuff. People are really paying attention. It would be very monetarily advantageous for a big news site to pick up on this and talk about it, but they will not touch it. And a lot of the thought it behind that is that Pfizer is pouring so much advertising dollars into a lot of these companies. Like they were, I remember in the middle of the pandemic, people were laughing about the fact that all of these news channels were like, here's coverage of the COVID pandemic brought to you by Pfizer. And everyone's like, oh, that's that's weird and funny, right? And then now we're like, wait, oh, is that why they're not covering this? Because they are so heavily invested in making sure that Pfizer looks good. So that's just one aspect we're going to be looking at today. I, I have a quick so question. Here's one, here's, one here's one thing I want to I want to clarify too. Like, one of the reasons why pretty soon here, we're going to be rolling this out for our audience a little bit later. We're, we're going to be having our own website that we set up. We're being very careful on the servers that we choose to do it because some people ask the question, okay, well, why, why are you, you know, trying to stay in the good graces of YouTube? It's not that it's that we want to be able to talk to people. We want to be able to share information. And so when we do, when we are prepared with our own website, with our own servers, there is going to be an opportunity too for us to be able uh, to have some more in-depth conversations. The, the other thing I, I want to clarify here real quick too, is this whole, this whole concept of gain of function. What exactly does that mean for anybody that isn't aware? Gain of function is essentially when you artificially manipulate uh, a, a virus um, or, or a subject in, in order to find out the different ways that you could, you know, theoretically make it more potent, that you could theoretically make it, um, oh, the, the word I'm looking for with respect to uh, spreading it, um, contagious, et cetera. That, that's what you're doing. Now, some people would ask, why in the heck would anybody conduct gain of function research? Well, the, the arguments that are used in favor of it is, is always this idea that well, somebody's going to be doing gain of function. Somebody's going to find different ways to weaponize it. Um, somebody's going to find different ways to manipulate it. Or you're, you're trying to mimic what could potentially happen within nature. And the, the justification for it is in that way you can create vaccines for the various strains. You can essentially kind of predict how it's going to develop, how it's going to mutate, and, and create response mechanisms to it. 
Right. So that that's the that's what you would call like the best case argument for why someone would conduct gain of function. Now, a lot of the problems that Rand Paul was bringing up is like, OK, it, it wasn't necessarily that there's no scenario in which gain of function research might be appropriate or justifiable. It was this idea that you're really going to outsource that to a Chinese lab. <laughs> like you're really, you're really going to outsource that to a communist dictatorship. Right. which is openly hostile to the United States. Like that was your grand plan. You thought that was, you thought that was a good idea. Like, like who's next? You know, is there, are there, I don't know, maybe Iran's interested, right? Like this, this was, this was part of the problem that they were bringing up is that not only is this incredibly sensitive work and, and potentially very bad because obviously in the process of developing something or, or conducting gain of function re- research, if you have a leak, whether it be accidental or intentional, you could have a real problem on your hands. And, and that's part of the reason they do it. And for Fauci to be, you know, essentially lying about that is it, something that really caused a complete lack in public trust. And now you see situations where Pfizer, you know, they're, they're talking about doing things. And again, they can come out later and say, well, everyone's doing it. Well, here's my question. If it's such a good idea and if you're doing it and if it's safe and you have all the right motives and everything else, it, it, would have, it probably would have been a lot smarter to come out at the beginning of all of this and explain this, but that's not what they were interested in doing. Nick, let me let me ask and, you and, this question. And this just well, and this just breeds this just breeds more mistrust because we have gotten to a point where once upon a time, if an institution had said, "Hey, we conduct these tests and these manipulations in a very very closed and secure setting in order to predict potential mutations in order to approach it," you would have had some people that you know hated that idea. You would have other people that thought it was a great idea, and you would have people saying, "Okay, there's varying degrees of skepticism," but the idea that you would have shut down any communication for talking about it. That's what puts everybody into this category of, okay, now I don't trust anything you're doing because you're willing to destroy the reputations of people that call into question your motivations and your actions. Quick question here, Nick. Do you believe that Pfizer would be participating in this type of research and potential mutation if they could not rely on the federal government to come in and pay for potential vaccines that could be used later down the road in the situation of the vaccine, um, the COVID or whatever it is, naturally mutating in that direction. Yes. I mean, here's what you need to understand. And, and I think Kristen is going to get more of the financials of this. But what's important to understand is that, again, even even when, even when in the, in the limited categories, you can, you can say, okay, here's a justifiable argument for why gain of research uh, would be conducted. The reason why you know, it, it's always had this, you know, incredible amount of oversight associated with it is because of the potential, either through motivations of terrorism, through criminal activity, through greed or whatnot, you can imagine, it's not difficult to imagine why somebody would want to create something that they then have the exclusive cure to, right? That's that's why this is so dangerous. That's that's why this is something that, again, requires a certain degree of, of oversight and control in order for people to feel, you know, as if everything's on the up and up. When you take out that transparency, when you take out that oversight, when you take out that control, and all of a sudden you create an environment like this, uh, plus if you add on top of that, the idea that clearly the federal government came out and essentially said, hey, we're going to pay for all of this up front, just do it as quickly as possible. That creates an additional motivation because now not only are you getting gobs of money to do this, but you're also protected from any sort of litigation in the future. 
And, and so that's the sort of perverse incentives that are created around both gain of function research, as well as the government just rushing to, quote, do something and not only paying for it, but then giving top cover from a litigation standpoint. Paying for it with newly printed money as well. I, I want to bring yeah. up um, actually two things um, that we didn't actually – when I was doing my own research for this episode, um, I didn't actually think of bringing this up. Um, there's actually two instances historically where um, research into I, I actual like military components of this, like bioweapons, ended up leaking and creating a huge crisis. And shockingly, they took place in the Soviet Union um, twice. We actually did a Y Minute about a year ago on this topic in the RLC. Um, in the 1970s, the Soviet Union twice in the decade – they had a, a bioweapons facility on an island in the RLC. Today, there is no island because there is no RLC, so it's connected to the mainland, the ruins of it. Um, but it was on this secluded island in the RLC, and, and that was where the Soviet Union was conducting a lot of their um, research into basically coming up with like biochemical weapons. And there were two outbreaks, one of smallpox and one of anthrax. And what the Soviets were trying to do is somewhat similar to gain of function. What they were trying to do was come up with like a military grade, you know, type of, of, you know, bioweapon that they could use against, you know, the West in case the Cold War ever went hot. But, um, but the story is actually quite similar and it's so little researched or understood today in the West. It was in 1971, there was the small pot, um, uh, there was a brand of smallpox that got out, um, and ended up killing a few dozen people. Um, and, and understand this is a very sparsely populated place. So it's not like densely populated China where again, where, you know, COVID can come out of potentially this lab in Wuhan and overnight basically infect, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And then in 1979, there was an anthrax leak that killed even more people. I, I think almost a hundred, um, What's shocking is that when the Soviet Union collapsed, the Soviet government just literally pulled, you know, their scientists out of what at that point was an independent Uzbekistan and just send them home. Like they didn't even do anything to try to like, you know, close down the facility. They just abandoned it. And it wasn't until about 2002 that the United States actually sent in um, experts and scientists to secure the the site in collaboration with the Uzbekistan government. So the, we have – the reason I bring this up is because we have examples in the past of how governments can basically botch something that from our point of view, we just think, how on earth could you allow something like that to happen? And like, like from our point of view, it sounds ridiculous. How could you have a bioweapons facility on the middle of this island in Central Asia and then – when your government collapses, you know, the newly formed Russian Federation decides to just leave the place open after having two previous leaks before. In some cases, it's kind of a miracle that you didn't get a third one for the, you know, tw you know, 20 years or so or 15 years or so between the collapse of the Soviet Union and when this place was actually secured. So, again, the reason I bring it up is because there's we have examples in the past of something like this happening. In this case, it was for explicitly military purposes, not for, say, commercial or private reasons. But um, yeah, I just, I found that really fascinating when I was doing my research and I found that out because I was doing the, the research into the Y minute a year ago when we talked about how the Soviet Union destroyed the RLC. One of my favorite Y minutes. We will leave a link to that in the comments. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great video. It's one of our best Good performing idea. videos. So feel free to take a look at it after, after you listen to this episode. But um, on the financial side, one of the things that I did um, pull up recently before um, we recorded this episode 
and then I sent her on to Hamilton is um, there's this wonderful website called Open Insider that shows you all of the stock trading for executives for every single publicly traded company in the United States that's listed on the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. And what I found with Pfizer was actually quite fascinating. For example, there has not been a single insider in the company that has bought a single share of stock. Actually, that's not true. I think that the limit is like, what, I think like $25,000 maybe until it gets reported. Don't quote me on that, but there might be a lower end limit. But basically, there's not been any substantial insider buying since August 2020. And what we've seen in the last, what, at this point, two and a half years has been almost relentless selling by executives within the company. I did the math and it, it amounted to, I think, over $30 million worth of stock in the company has been sold by executives without any being purchased. Well, I think everybody knows that this has been a huge, I mean, just huge windfall for big pharma, big. And it's interesting because like, um, I just wanted to point out real quick, uh, the name of the guy that was actually recorded by Project Veritas is uh, Jordan Tristan. Walker. He's Pfizer Director of Research and Development, uh, Strategic Operations, and mRNA Scientific Planning. So, like, this isn't just some random guy, like, helping to grow. He's not picking up the the phones. He's not. (laughs) He's he's not, like, the receptionist, okay? This guy is in charge. He's a Director of Research and Development, Strategic Operation, okay? All right. So, all of that said... In the video, which we aren't showing any clips, um, but I do have some transcripts that I found really interesting. Um, there was a section there where he was talking about, uh, you know, developing viruses and variants before they pop up in order to kind of predict what kind of new vaccines they might need to create, which all sounds fairly reasonable, correct? Um, but uh you know, the, the journalist said, oh, wow, that's great. And uh, Walker goes, yeah, if it works. And he goes, what do you mean if it works? And he goes, because sometimes there are mutations that pop up that we are not prepared for, like with Delta and Omicron and things like that. Who knows? Either way, it's going to be a cash cow. COVID is going to be a cash cow for us um, for a while going forward, like obviously. That's the way he said it. And then he goes on. To say in any industry, though, um, in the in the pharma industry, all the people who review our drugs, eventually most of them, he was talking about the FDA and the food, the Food and Drug Administration and everything and politicians. Anyway, he says uh, most of them will come and work for pharma companies. And he basically says um, he's basically saying this, that this is a revolving door for politicians and regulators and that they will all eventually come there for jobs one day. And um, that's very true. Yeah. And what's really funny. um, So the Veritas guy goes, how do you feel about this revolving door? He goes, it's pretty good for the industry. To be honest, it's bad for everybody else in America. Like this guy is just being so honest accidentally. And I think it's really interesting that they constantly use the honeypot or honey trap method. Um, and that's an old spy term, right? Where they would use a beautiful woman and she would like lure a guy in with the promise of whatever might lure him in. And she ends up extracting information. There's a reason this works. Now, um, lately the most beneficial ones have been in, um, you know, among gay men, 
um, in the dating scene for some reason. That's been very successful for them. I mean, that's how they caught uh, the Twitter people, um, you know, hammering on uh, uh, Elon Musk. And then that's also how they caught this one as well. And so Nick mentioned the dating scene and, and that's maybe that's the difference. Maybe guys are really interested in this stuff. To the point of that transcript where the, the, the guy working for Pfizer said that, you know, oh, well, a lot of these people that are in government you you know used to have ties to the pharmaceutical industry or 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 they are they will come and work for them later yes yes it'll it'll be one or the other either right. you start in the private sector and then go into government or you start in government and then you go into the private sector it's a revolving door the current commissioner of food and drugs um was a paid consultant for johnson and johnson before he became the fda commissioner um and that is a very common thing as as tina pointed out and as this guy pointed out in the transcript like that's not I say this and some people's reaction might be, oh, that's surprising, but it, it really is not. If you look at like past FDA commissioners, almost to a T across all parties and administrations, that is a very common thing. Now, one side, and I'm sure that 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 you could make the argument, well, you want somebody that has industry expertise that's going to be working in that field. Fair enough. But there's perverse incentives there's, involved. There's a perverse incentive involved yeah. that that this guy in this clip brought up where he was like, oh, it's great for the industry, but it's bad for everybody else. You know what that really sounds like to me is that it sounds like regulatory capture, which we've talked about yes. on this podcast before. Can you define that for us? Regulatory capture is when a particular company or industry, so it could sometimes be a handful of companies, a small number. It could be three. A lot of times it can only be one. What they will do is they will monopolize the government oversight of that industry in order to make sure that no competitors can ever come along. I.e. FTX. Uh, well, FTX tried yeah. to do it. They weren't able to pull it off before everything blew up in their face. But, and we've also talked about this on a Y Minute before um, that, that we put out at the very end of 2022. What FTX was trying to do was set up the regulatory capture scheme um, Sam Bankman-Fried was meeting with members of Congress and donating large sums to them. Yeah. He was the largest donor to Democrats in the 2022 cycle because he wanted particular laws to be passed that would have basically a, a de facto meant that only companies like FTX would be able to control uh. the entire crypto trading sector. And so that didn't actually come to fruition, though, because FTX ended up collapsing before those bills could pass. And now those bills are going to have a huge hurdle if they're ever going to going to get passed in the future because of this whole debacle that happened. But that is a really good example, though, Hamilton. So are the regulators in government all who would potentially get a job at Pfizer after retiring from public service <laughs> are are those people the ones that are also deciding how much funding Pfizer gets for Things like vaccines. Let's put it like this. I'm going to use an analogy. I'll, I'll, I'm going to tell you a story real quick, and sure. I'm not going to use any names. There was a member actually in the Virginia House of Delegates many years ago, way before Nick was in office. This is way before Nick's time in Virginia politics. So we're talking like, you know, 10, 20 years ago plus. Um, there was a member of the Virginia House of Delegates who ended up going to jail eventually because what he tried to do was force funding into the state budget to create a new position at a university that was near his district because he was planning on retiring in a few cycles. And what he wanted to do was get this job at this university that he was going to funnel money to into the state budget. He literally was trying to 
pay off this university with state funds to create a new position at the university that then he could fill once he retired and, and left his seat. And this was all blown open, um, ended up being a huge scandal, and, and he ended up going to prison for it. I'm not saying that every single instance of regulatory capture involves, say, a politician literally trying to like create a job for them to fill once they leave office, but you see examples of that happening in multiple industries. I just used education because that's one where the government is so heavily involved that yeah. in many cases they basically just run it, right? You know, there's a state school. And and so it, it there is no, you know, very very limited private sector involvement in that. But there's multiple examples that we can point to where you have this level of of collusion between the public and private sector where a politician will they call it public partnership, public-private public partnerships, partnerships. Yes, which is also called corruption. Right? Yes, uh, in many cases it is. But but there, there's many examples where a politician and the private, you know, and a company that they're working with will, you know, work towards regulatory capture in a way that will benefit both sides of that equation. The only people that lose out are, are us, are the mm -hmm. consumers. It's it's the rest of the public. What are your so thoughts? So funny on that? and so self-aware <laughs> that he mentioned that he's like, "This is really bad for everyone else." I'm like, "Yes, yes, it is. It's nice that you realize that." And it's but he really was chuckling very about it too. He was laughing. Yeah, about he it. doesn't see. See, he doesn't see a problem with it because it benefits them. Um, it is so interesting to me that he's also aware that there's such a revolving door of government officials in this industry because I actually talked about this a while ago on my show, my personal little YouTube channel, and I was talking about how there are so many spooks in big tech in Silicon Valley. And it appears to me that this is just the way that you get a foot in the door anywhere you feel like you need to go to work. You can just go into government and move with the understanding that you'll be hired anywhere here on out because everything is so heavily regulated by the government at this point. And I view that as an innate problem with our insane overregulation. Um, so that's, this is just a really interesting expose just of that. I feel like, you know, forget about Pfizer. What this guy has to say is really interesting because he knows what he's talking about. He works in the industry. He sees what works for them and how the government helps them. And as far as I'm concerned, this is just like a stunning, like, good 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 confidence vote for conservative values and the concept of a much smaller government which i'm sure nick could speak to as well but it's so interesting to me that it's being blown so wide open right now and big tech is so quick to try to quell it well, and this is another thing too we need to understand every time politicians run out there and say we need more funding for science keep in mind there, there's no such thing as quote funding for science right there's not some generic pool of science funding, right? Every single thing that they put within that category can include everything from the mundane to the useful to the ridiculous, as again, Senator Rand Paul has pointed out before, to the potentially dangerous. But again, they will always, they will always lobby to under science funding because who doesn't want to fund science? And, and I just want people to understand just because, you know, you, you'll get some people out there that are true like champions that will fight against some of this and say, look, this is inappropriate, not because we don't want to fund scientific research, but because we understand that funding for scientific research comes sometimes with motivations that we might not agree with, with objectives that we might not agree with. And, and you know what? If the university or a lab or whatnot wants to get money for that funding, they can always go and they can get people to either donate it, they can get people to invest in it, they can get to do these other things. But just because the government's funding scientific research doesn't mean it's, it's benign. 
or, or that it's beneficial. It's so convenient that the scientific funding that these politicians are advocating for also have the opportunity to be their livelihood and wealth after they retire from this public service. Christian, I have a question for you. If you were speaking to someone who believed that government regulation is the first solution to a problem and generally have a, a good a good view of government regulation, what would you do to try and convince them that regulation on behalf of the federal government or even state government may not be the best solution? Um, well, let's look at the things I, I'm going to steal Nick's line here. Okay. If, 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 if this helps look at the things that everybody would agree, regardless of your political views, that of all the industries in the United States, the two that have the most amount of government involvement and regulation are healthcare and education. How many of you are satisfied with the services that you're getting in healthcare and education? Yeah. Maybe there's some sort of correlation that's going on there. Now, granted, we know that correlation is not causation, right? So so fair enough. So how about let's do the reverse? Look at the industries that have arguably the least amount of government regulation in America. How many government regulations exist when it comes to manufacturing a television or a computer or a laptop versus conducting surgery or mm-hmm. providing K-12 through education or higher education? None. Well, look at the comparison. No, there's definitely regulations when it comes to, you know, making a laptop. Very there's few. definitely regulations that exist. I mean, they, they, unfortunately, there's regulations in almost any industry at this point in the United States. But there is a lot less burden. There's a lot less less hurdles that you have to overcome to make a television than it is for you to conduct laser eye surgery. Um, now, granted, somebody might say, well, that's because you're you're dealing with somebody's body. You don't want to hurt somebody. You know, if you if you make a, a bad television, then, you know, oh, you know, you're out a couple hundred bucks. But if you botch laser eye surgery, you might blind somebody. That's a very fair point. Um, would we say that we're satisfied, though, with the results that we see in these in these fields? How many people had to deal with with insane wait times or um, canceled appointments or in many cases, way worse fates? involving not diagnosing certain illnesses in time during the pandemic. And how many of, 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 of those issues were brought about because of government regulation within that sector? Tina, you were just discussing this before we started. Yeah, I was, I was talking about the fact that uh, there was a period of time where absolutely everything was COVID and how many people suffered the ramifications of other ailments because all the focus was on getting that sweet COVID cash. I mean, for instance, my dad was having pressure in his lungs for months and months and they kept saying, well, it must be pneumonia and they're running all these tests and let's test you for COVID again and test you for COVID again and put you in a room with a whole bunch of COVID patients because we think you really might have COVID. Turns out it's a massive cancer mass that they could have caught months before and saved his life. He passed away last year and it's possible that it's possible that if they would have caught that earlier, they could have dealt with it, but they didn't because everything was COVID. And I want to know how many situations are like that. You know, I know a lot of people who they had to forego special screenings. They had to go forego like, you know, uh, dialysis. I mean, all kinds of things that people had to skip on um, in the medical field because everything was COVID focused or it was so shut down that they couldn't get the treatments that were needed or the screenings that were needed. 
Well, and this that illustrates an important distinction here. So, like, so when you when you consider your original question of the Christian about okay, what would you say to someone that that kind of automatically takes this position that well, of course, we need the government to intervene in order to develop solutions. The first thing that I, I would always challenge people on is stop using the word solutions. And, and start thinking of them as trade-offs because solution implies that in, in every one of these situations that we're talking about, there is a correct way to do it for the millions, hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of people worldwide that might be affected by a particular government action. All right. And, and we, we kind of, once we, once we get out of this idea that this is all about, oh, we're just trying to find the solution instead of recognizing that there actually might be a lot of different solutions for a particular problem based off of the people that are affected, the resources available, uh, the, the time constraints we're dealing with, the particular objectives we want, right? So it, it's trade-offs. When the government is doing this, they're engaging in trade-off. They're saying, we're going to emphasize one approach or, or a couple of different approaches at the expense of all the other approaches that we could take. But the difference with the government doing that and you doing that, right? Because we do the same thing within our lives. Every time we make a decision, we're essentially discriminating against all of the other decisions that we could have made to, to address the problem. The difference is when you do it in your life, you're generally taking your time, your talents, your resources, and you're prioritizing them in order to address a, an individual problem. When we do it in the private sector, as, as a number of people or a group of people, we're, st we're doing the same thing, but we might be saying, you know what, we trust a particular company or a particular organization or a particular charity. We trust the level of expertise or experience they have, and so that's where I'm going to donate my money, or that's where I'm going to go to in order to receive care, or that's where I'm going to go to to purchase a product or a service, right? But you're still making decisions for you. And, and, and other people are now collaborating within the marketplace in order to address a problem. But in that environment, you're doing it peacefully. Then there's the third option. The third option is we're going to hand this over to the government. And the government's going to do it. Okay, a couple of things you need to understand about the trade-off you have selected. The trade-off you have selected automatically, by definition, includes violence and coercion now because the government doesn't ask you to do stuff. The government tells you to do stuff. Now, mm -hmm. you may say in certain situations, like perhaps a war, like, okay, great, the, the, you know, the, the, the British are coming. Okay, we're, we're going to go ahead and say that the, the threat that we have right now is, is so overwhelming and the, the nature of government is well suited to addressing this particular threat. So we recognize there's a trade-off involved, but we think the trade-off is, is worth it and highly likely to work in order to achieve a positive outcome. All right, but that's what people need to start thinking about. First of all, again, number one, step number one, stop thinking of it as, oh, there's one solution, and that's what we're going to address. Because in most cases, there are not. The second, so it's trade-offs versus solutions. The second one is recognize that there's a big difference between you making a trade-off based off of your priorities or you know, potentially millions of people agreeing on making a trade-off based off of voluntary cooperation within the marketplace or within charity, and then you being forced to make a trade-off because the government says so. And, and I think when you look at it in those terms, all of a sudden that government option doesn't provide the same you know, security or, or warm and fuzzy feeling that some people think it should provide when you understand that that's what's actually going on. 
And it is so easy. It is so easy to come back later, especially when you know better, you know what's going to send like, well, if only we had done this or if only we had done that. Well, again, the, the best way to get to the best solutions is usually to allow free people to work together, collaborate, and compete within the marketplace because the best ideas generally rise to the top very quickly. But if you're going to shut all that down and say, no, we're going to put a bureaucracy in charge, what the bureaucracy ends up doing is saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to try to replicate what goes on in the market. That's if you're lucky. They're going to try to replicate what goes on in the market. They can never do it because now you have political incentives driving it. And money. And then when they arrive, and they, yeah, and then when they arrive at certain solutions and they don't work, they immediately come back, and the whole the whole objective of the organization is to then defend themselves and say, "Oh my gosh, it would have been so much worse had we not acted. It would have been so much worse had we not done that." Well, maybe right. that's true. Maybe that's not true. We'll probably never know. And if you're going to censor, ban, punish, fine, jail anyone that disagrees with you, I'm not willing to assume that. Right. So. Start with start with the start with the courses of action that allow openness, transparency, collaboration, competition. Start with the peaceful methods, and and we can we should at least start there before we automatically resort to you know what now we're just going to give this problem to a bunch of politicians and bureaucrats and throw billions of printed mm -hmm. dollars at it because what could possibly go wrong? Well, now we know if we didn't already. I would like yeah. to count. I would like everyone to count on their fingers how many other politicians that they have heard in their lifetime speak about trade-offs and solutions in the way Nick just did. That's a great point. Always. Rand Paul. I'm convinced <laughs> that the reason Nick has not been successful running for higher office is because he refuses to lie to people who want to be lied to. Mm. Yep. And well, I mean, that, right? Thomas Sowell well, says that, that in paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a whole separate problem. Although, in retrospect, I, I'm actually okay. This is off topic, but I'm gonna make it make it 30 seconds. I'm actually really glad that that played out the way that it did because nobody in Richmond can ever threaten Nick with any sort of political retribution or retaliation for anything because all Nick needs to say is, "I can win re-election in my own district without my name be, even being on the ballot." And at mm. that point. There's no leverage that can ever be in used a landslide against you, ever. Yeah, and right. so, so I'll leave it there on that. But, but, but to Tina's point, like Thomas Sowell says all the time, mm -hmm. and this is my favorite part of these episodes is when I get to like, like remind the audience, you know, of some quote from somebody. And I yeah. usually will either go to Thomas Sowell or Frederick Bastia, but, but Sowell has told us repeatedly that, you know, the reason that so many politicians are shameless liars is not really a, a reflection just on them. It's also a reflection on us because when the people demand the impossible, only liars can suffice. Part yep. of the reason that we have people in government in either elected positions or bureaucratic positions and part of the reason that we have so many entities within the private sector that are gearing themselves towards placating the state rather than placating the consumer is because the state has become their consumer. And it's wow. because that's where the money and power is. And the reason that that's where the money and power is is because that's what we've chosen to do as the American people. We're the ones that voted these people in office. Now, obviously, none of us at this table voted for Joe Biden, as far as I re recall. No. But but <laughs> how, how, do we, how do we take the public consciousness, the voters— and can and and somehow get it in their mind to ask these questions, uh, and you know, ask the question of when when a politician says, "I'm going to make sure this gets done." 
how do we get them to ask themselves, is this a solution that you, you know what we should do? We should start a podcast where we talk about <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's a great idea. We try to help people understand how to see through. That's this really stuff. the whole point of making it the is. argument at it the is. end of the day. But I mean, yeah. it, it kind of goes to show you why it is. And we talked about this a little bit beforehand, why it is that so many people are so disillusioned is because They've been lied to so many times and they've be, been betrayed so many times. I mean, and not just by politicians, also by those who we have all been sort of trained to trust. Like, for instance, we're starting to see that the American Heart Association, after having a, a wonderful donation from the cottonseed industry, starts to mm. vilify animal fats and things like that. And then what else? Oh, the food pyramid. Oh, that was as a result of of some uh, nice greasing of the palms as well. I mean, there is a lot of stuff that that we've just kind of trust because yeah. we assume they have our best interest in mind. When in reality, there is a whole massive like funding apparatus where people are just greasing their palms and causing themselves to become so wealthy. And it's so crazy to me that some of the people who were the biggest anti big pharma, you know, big business, big pharma, yeah. pharma, bad. Some of those people became the biggest apologists for big pharma that you've ever seen. And they haven't even stopped. They're continuing on. And mm -hmm. it's amazing to me how quickly they flipped like, oh, well, we better believe big pharma now. Really? Because yeah. like five minutes ago, you were like, big pharma's bad. And now you're saying, let's worship at the feet of big pharma. So that's just kind of my analysis there. I, mean, I think that you're right. And my, my <laughs> husband and I were talking about this the other day because we were looking at all the old cool bands we used to like and the bands that a lot of people used to like, including bands with names like Rage Against the Machine. Yes. That oh. only, yeah, they only raged against the machine until it was their machine in charge. And I was like, yeah. I remember in high school looking at a band like Bad Religion and saying, why are they talking about signing the Kyoto Protocol? Because they're supposed to be anti-big government. They had a song called called Kyoto now. And I was like, are you guys crazy? Because what you're presenting yourselves as, which is the anti the machine, anti the man, and you're literally shilling in the name of, honestly, it's, it's disgusting. Yeah. They me, are the man now. Yeah. yeah, they are exactly. And I was like, okay, well at least their lead singer has the excuse of being a professor at Berkeley. That's a little bit oh, different, gosh. but yeah, Rage Against the Machine. That's not a good excuse at all. <laughs> I know. I know. It should be, you know, it should be a defense against that, but it's not. Anyway, to wrap this all up, I just wanted to say I know that everything seems like it's going to the going to the dogs or going to heck in a handbasket or however, however you would put it. But I personally am really grateful for the layer of accountability and sunshine that Project Veritas has recently brought because we can see that this is a huge problem in all different sectors. We see it in Silicon Valley. We see it in healthcare. We see it in pharmacy. We see it everywhere because we see the revolving door now in a way that we hadn't before. And I know this could be a little bit controversial, but I personally am somewhat grateful for the fact that we are currently suffering through the Biden administration and through all of these left-wing policies because it's really, I hope, I hope and pray, and this is part of the reason that I'm loving helping you guys with this podcast because I'm hoping that this is light enlightening people to a lot of this that we've been talking about for such a long time that no one was able to see before. I really feel like COVID and the Biden administration 
and, and players like Project Veritas are really illuminating a lot of this stuff that who knows how long this has been going on for and we just didn't know about it. So I, for one, am grateful. I'm really glad that Project Veritas did what they did. I'm glad that that engineer was so loosey-goosey with who he was willing to share you know, industry secrets with. I think that's a great thing because this is why we believe in freedom of speech. We believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And when you can get somebody to tell you the honest truth, even if they're not fully aware of exactly what they're doing, as long as you're following the laws of that state, looking at the aspect of the transparency and the accountability is so crucial to making sure that people know what is going on and what they're not being told. And that's very, very important for helping people make informed decisions and not to just become crazy lunatic conspiracy theorists. Because I understand there's a certain appeal to being like, oh, well, you know, I was right about all this stuff up till now. What's going to stop me from being right about everything else? And then just going off on a wild conspiracy tear. And that's not really what we want. We want people to be balanced and to be searching for the truth. Healthy skepticism. Um, but yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But we really do want to encourage people to keep that skepticism and to just keep asking questions and looking for the truth. I think that if you point people in the direction of truth, you're never going to be steered wrong. So that's really what I want to leave people with today. It's been a wonderful, fun, casual conversation. I'm so glad Nick was able to stay with us for so long. If you guys have any closing thoughts, let's throw them out now and then we'll uh, get this ready to go. Looking forward to seeing everyone on this coming Thursday's episode. I am really looking forward to Thursday's episode. If it's going to end up being my favorite crappy stock and in, in the in, in the entire uh, history of of the everything bubble is going to end up uh, uh, showing up front and center if I if I'm uh, if I get my way. Um, so okay. that'll be really really fun. <laughs> I, I think that we're going to be exploring the relationship, kind of. Uh, continuing off with what we did today where we're going to be doing a little bit more exploring that relationship between the government and the private sector. Mm -hmm. And when I say yeah. private sector, again, I'm not, I, I, I just want to end with this. There's increasingly this element within the conservative movement and the Republican party that is skeptical of markets. I am not. What I'm skeptical of is collusion between private companies in the government. I am not skeptical of capitalism. I, and I know that there's a, increasingly it's popular within the conservative movement to really reject many of the free market principles that made in the United States what it is. And I think that is kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The problem is cronyism, not capitalism. Right. And, and there's so many examples of this. Whenever the government is involved in things that it has no business being involved in, that's when it mucks things up. But that doesn't mean that, that you know, we should reject free enterprise out of hand simply because we have so many examples of Wall Street or Silicon Valley colluding with elements of, of the federal government or federal bureaucracy, or in some cases, state level bureaucracy in order to enrich themselves at the expense of, of, of the consumer or the general public. So I just want to end with that, but um, yeah, Thursday's episode should be a really interesting one because I, I feel like that in many ways there's going to be connections between what we talked about today and yeah. what we're going to be talking about in the future. If you are concerned about your 401k and retirement accounts, if you are a retail trader like Krishna and I who invest in certain companies, and if you are someone interested in how this inflationary market that we just went through uh, affected the stock market and what tech companies and different companies like Carvana and DoorDash were able to do through an inflationary market, it's really going to be in a fascinating conversation conversation this Thursday. We look forward to seeing you there and be sure to go to the description of this podcast, join our community chat on 
Volley. You'll need to download the app, but I promise it's worth it. We're discussing so many great things there, including this topic, and we look forward to meeting you there. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.